0: Well, let's turn uh, let's turn in our Bibles to Galatians chapter three and particularly verses twenty six to twenty nine maybe like me, you found yourself sometimes uh, needing something and thinking you know if only I had such and such a thing it would have saved me all this bother uh, and then you find that it's been sitting on a shelf in the garage all that time or On a shelf uh, in the study. I remember once my computer being uh, wiped out by a virus, only to find that I had an antivirus sitting on a shelf in my study that I'd never bothered installing. I had it, but I hadn't used it. And there's lessons there, both for beginning the Christian life and for the Christian life. There's an application uh, for the person who's not a Christian to realize that one day they will find themselves in great bother, but the solution has been there for them to take all along. But there's one of the great writers, a man who was a phenomenal intellect, and who thought uh, that John Bunyan was one of the greatest. John Bunyan wasn't an educated man. This other man, John Owen, was one of the great uh, writers and thinkers of his day. John Owen said, I wish... I had John Bunyan's tongue. I wish I could write and speak the way he speaks. But John Owen said something that is really helpful for us as we seek to live the Christian life. He said, Our great problem is not lack of effort, but that we are unacquainted with our privileges. Our great problem is not lack of effort, but unacquaintedness with our privileges. And Paul in Galatians. Uh, Paul in Galatians is dealing with that same problem. People have forgotten the privileges that they have. Uh, Jewish believers were telling these Gentile believers that they had to be circumcised and they had to obey all of the ritual laws in the Old Testament. Their attention had switched from believing uh, to doing. And in the midst of all of this uh, instruction that they're being given, they've lost sight of the truth that Jesus has done it all. And we can lose sight of that truth for ourselves. And, and Paul writes to them, and he's quite quite irate at those who have taught them wrongly and at these people for turning away from Jesus so quickly. And there's a long involved piece of reasoning And we're not going to look at that this morning. Maybe some other time we will. But he finishes that piece of reasoning with four clear pictures. And we're going to look at those four clear pictures this morning. In verses 26 to 29, he has these four pictures. The first picture is this. Christians. Christians are sons or we might say sons and daughters of Almighty God. Christians are sons and daughters of Almighty God. You are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. If you cast your eye back to verse 7, he said, Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. This was the Jews' great privilege to be a child of Abraham, to be an an heir of, of all the promises that were made to Abraham. Abraham was the one that God had called out of of idolatry and started his great saving work in Abraham and to be part of Abraham's family line was to be part of God's great saving work. And already Paul has said, not just to the Jews, but to the Gentiles, the people who weren't part of Abraham's family biologically, that because they have faith, They are sons of Abraham too. They belong to this family line of blessing. They belong to this great privilege. And now he says, oh no, it's much better than that. It's much greater than that. You're all sons and daughters of Almighty God himself. Here is our new status. Here's the status of the Christian. And you know, it's something that we could take for granted. We're used to, to thinking of how we address God as Father. We're familiar with that. But it's an incredible privilege. And it's the work of the Spirit in us. We read from chapter 4. It, it's the Spirit. God has placed the Spirit of His Son in our hearts. And what does the Spirit do? Well, He teaches us to cry out, Father, we are allowed to call God Father. and I just want to ask you this morning, is that how you think of yourself and see yourself if you're a Christian? You are a son, a daughter of Almighty God. That's what we've been reminded of as we've thought of baptism. And Paul's going to tie this in in a moment. God put His name on us. We're Robert and Chloe, those of you who have been baptised, have been baptised into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. There's a being brought into the family. And and there are two particular aspects just to note this morning. These these four portraits, pictures, you could have an entire sermon series on each one. We're not going to do that this morning. All we're going to do is, is put the four portraits up on the wall and point out a few things. And in the rest of the week... You could go back to this and you could look at these four verses, the four portraits, and unpack them and stand in front of them and look at them and think, what do I learn here? What other bits of the Bible feed into this? son, a daughter of God. Where do we see God as father? Maybe the the parable of the prodigal son. And we, we look there and we think, wow, look at how gracious and forgiving and generous my father is. Well, let's think a little bit more uh, about this portrait. It, it tells us two things. First of all, we have a permanent loving relationship with God. A permanent loving relationship with God. It's, it's Father's Day today. That's not why I picked this passage uh, to, to speak on. But it is Father's Day today. And Father's Day can conjure up all sorts of memories and all sorts of thoughts. Not everyone has had a good or a loving father. Some people, uh, their fathers haven't loved them as they ought to have done. Some have been distant, some have been absent, some have been cold, some have been abusive. And it can be hard, depending on our experience, to, to, to hear that God is like a father and to set aside all the associations, but that's what we're to do and to let God's words speak to us of what God is like as a father. And the relationship that he has with his children is a permanent, loving relationship. And in that permanent, loving relationship, you see, the Galatians didn't think it was permanent. They thought it was a bit like the the TV program, The Apprentice, that they would come in before God, and God would take a look at them and go, "Hmm, you haven't done well enough, you're fired. Go, leave, now. No, Paul says, how foolish. How foolish. Are you now trying to, having begun by the Spirit, who's assured you that you are children, by whom you call God Father, are you now trying to be a son by human effort? Madness, he says. You've got a father. He doesn't throw you out. And this father will bless and provide for his children. We see that throughout, throughout Scripture and particularly the New Testament. Jesus teaches us to pray. Our Father in heaven. And it goes on and then it says, Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins. There's our, our basic physical need and our great spiritual need and everything in between. A Father who blesses and provides. We live in an uncertain world. We don't know what the future holds. But our dad does. He says, I've got you covered. I know what you need. And I'll provide. We have him looking out for us. And we have his wisdom. And we have his power. And we have his care coming out of his power. And his wisdom as they combine with his love for us. Do you need to be reminded of your status as a son, a daughter, of God. And the second thing to think about in this portrait, as you look at this portrait in your mind's eye, perhaps you've seen uh, a big family photograph and you're looking along at it and you can tell, yeah, those guys are related and those people are children of Him. And oh boy, I don't, I've never met Mark's granddad, but I can tell which one Mark's granddad is. At Synod recently, one of the ministers said to me, although Synod was on Zoom, One of the ministers said to me, he said, uh, when your brother Joel spoke, I just saw your dad right away in Joel's face and in Joel's voice. And funny, as I've been watching Zoom and seen myself on the screen, I thought, there's my dad looking back at me. Um, But isn't that it? We begin to resemble our parents. Why do you think God has made it that way in nature? Because the astonishing truth in Scripture is that we begin to be like our Father in heaven. Yes, we know the Spirit makes us more Christ-like, but who does Jesus reveal? Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen my Father. So we begin to share His characteristics. What an incredible thing. You know, Sometimes somebody says to a child, you know, or a teenager or a a 20-something, you're becoming more and more like your dad. What a wonderful thing if somebody were to say to us, you're becoming more and more like your father. Paul's going to go on to set out in chapter 5 and 6 some strong challenges for them to live by and say, you're, you're to live this way. You're to, to put off the old way of living and you're to put on the new way of living. But that's all based on this foundation of you're being made like your Father. You belong. And so obedience is the privilege of becoming like our Father in heaven. What a wonderful thing. What an encouragement it is. That's only the first portrait. But before we leave it, Again, I need to say to anyone here or anyone watching, anyone listening, who's not a Christian, that this is not a privilege that is yours to be a son or a daughter. It's not a privilege that's yours yet, but it could be yours. You see, the verse says how a person becomes a son of God, a daughter. You're all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And why do you need to do this Because, we'll see in a moment, we are not right with God. We have, hanging over us, an awful judgment that is ready to fall on us. The same God who would bring us into His family will also condemn to hell those who do not turn to Him for forgiveness and accept the salvation that He has so wonderfully promised and provided. And how do we take this salvation on board? It's by putting our trust in Jesus Christ. Asking the Son of God to take our place in taking judgment so that we could take His place as sons and daughters. And so here's this wonderful first picture. A Christian is a son of God. The second picture, you can almost see Paul anticipating a question. Well, why is it? Why is it that we who are flawed and sinful people could ever be brought into God's house and home and family? And the second picture is this, and it's why we read from Zechariah 3. Christians are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Christians are clothed in Christ's righteousness. Look at uh, the next verse. For all you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Here's why we can stand in God's presence as sons or daughters. He's saying, you remember when you were baptized and the waters of baptism washed over you? Well, they were a picture of your sins being washed away And you being made clean. And he combines imagery. He then says, you've been clothed in Christ. And this imagery of clothing is such a a powerful one throughout Scripture. Think of the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve disobey God. The first sin, the first rebellion. And there they are, and they're ashamed of, of their nakedness. And what does God do? He comes... He takes away their own efforts at covering up their nakedness. And he makes clothes for them. He makes garments for them and covers them over. A symbol of sins being forgiven. Think of that parable we've mentioned, the parable of the prodigal son. And there's the son coming back and he's covered in the the filth of the pigsty. And what does his father do? He doesn't say, would you ever go and take a bath and clean yourself up? and then come and talk to me. The Father embraces him and then says, get the best robe and put it on him. And think, uh, think too of that passage we read from Zechariah 3, the imagery of the high priest clothed in filthy garments and the angel of the Lord. That's Old Testament language for Jesus Christ, the messenger, the one who would come and bring the message of salvation. That's an appearance of God the Son, the angel of the Lord, says, take off his filthy garments and put clean garments on him. Satan, how dare you accuse him? You have no more words to say against this man because I have covered over his filthiness with clean garments. And so it is for the Christian. We are clothed in Christ's perfect obedience. What a wonderful thing. You know, the, the, the Galatians are being told that it's not enough that you were baptized. You need to be circumcised and you need to not eat this meat and you need to not eat that meat and you need to don't do this and, and do do that and uh, all these things that they were to do in addition. And Paul says, no, no. see when you were baptized, That was symbolic of you being clothed with Christ. Now, what needs to be added to Christ? What needs to be put in addition to Jesus' work? Nothing needs to be added. So here is the Christian. And imagine yourself. See, See yourself standing on the day of judgment before the judge of all the earth. And there you are. And it's not your life that you're dressed in but it's the the storyline of Jesus' life and his obedience as a child. I was reading Psalm 25 the other day, my sins and faults of youth, O Lord, will you forget, and in your loving kindness think of me, and in your goodness great. And that reminder that can come to us of our sins and faults of youth, and maybe the sins and faults of last week, or maybe the sins and faults of today, and they come, and, and yes, we need to ask for forgiveness for them, so that, the, the air is clear between us and God. But Jesus has paid for them at the cross. And we're clothed in Christ's righteousness. And that accuser that comes to us and says, this is what you did, and points the finger at us, the old enemy, we need to remember we have been clothed in Christ. We may have a past we regret, but we are not to allow the devil to cast it up into our face because Christ is paid and we are clothed in the righteousness of the Son of God. What a wonderful thing. Do you need reminded of that? Remember that as God looks at you now, He no longer sees the mess of the past or the present, but He sees the perfection of His Son. Don't let the privileges of forgiveness be eaten up by the accusations of Satan. Picture number three. The next verse. The next verse. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ. Picture number three. You're all part of a family. You see, these categories that are mentioned here were the great fault lines of the ancient world. The Jews thought they were superior to everybody else because they were the chosen people. They were the ones that, that God had elected and set his name on and dwelt in their midst and they felt superior to everybody else. The Greeks thought with their great wisdom and learning and culture that everybody else were just country yokels. Masters thought slaves were expendable goods, uh, that you could just use them for whatever you wanted and cast them aside when they were broken and get a new one. And slaves, they, they had little respect for their masters. And men, Husbands saw their wives simply as a piece of property to do with as they pleased. And Paul says, something has happened here amongst you. And yes, for the Galatians, the big one is, in a sense, the Jews and Gentiles. But Paul wants to broaden the application to show that something wonderful has happened, that all the dividing lines have gone. All the things that would cause somebody to look down on somebody else, they've gone. They've been taken away because we've all been brought into the one family. The Christian slave is to no longer look at his master and think, Ah, him. I'm not going to work terribly hard for him. He's just, a, he's just my boss. He's to think of him as his own brother. And how much would he do for his brother to help And to serve. The Christian husband is to no longer look at his wife and and see her as some sort of slightly elevated skivvy uh, who was at his beck and call, but he was to look at her as a sister, as someone who he would protect, someone that, that Christ had died for and that he was to lay down his life for. He wasn't to regard her as an inferior but as a partner in Christ. And the, the Jews were no longer to think of themselves as set apart and a cut above. They were to look at their Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ and say, here, we are equal in this family. And so you see, this is what God has done. He has made, Oh, think of our world. Our world is becoming increasingly divided, increasingly polarized. And some of them are the old dividing lines surfacing again. Racism and bigotry and cultural bigotry. And the church family is to, to be a place where all of that is seen to be gone. And here is our great privilege. We are a family. I was listening to an interview with Rico Tice. Rico Tice wrote the Christianity Explored course. He's a wonderful evangelist. But in this interview, he was speaking about how his brother came to faith. His brother came to faith because he had to write an essay for R.E about the connection between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And so he went and he asked his Maz teacher at the boarding school he was at, he knew the Maz' teacher was a bit religious. It turns out he was a Christian. And this Maz teacher unpacked for him the connections between the old and the new, showed him Isaiah 53, showed him Christ and and the gospel, and started and this man, George, became a Christian. Then George went off to take a gap year and travel the world, go to South Africa and go to New Zealand, and as Rico Tice was telling the story, he choked up. He completely choked up telling the story. He said, this was in the 1980s, and he said, My brother's Ma's teacher rang in the 1980s to South Africa every week, to New Zealand every week, to wherever George was, found a local church, spoke to Christians there and said, here's a baby Christian who's staying in a youth hostel. Could you call and see him? And Christians would travel and they would go and find George. And they would say, your math teacher rang. Come to us for the weekend and come to our church. That's family. That's the family that we belong to. That's what it is to be part of Christ's family. People that the math teacher had never met came and picked up a person that they had never met because they were family. And that's, that's part of our great privilege. The Christian is never, ever on their own. And This is a privilege that, that we enjoy in our fellowship. And it's a privilege that we must guard in our fellowship. Satan would always love to get in and find old dividing lines and get in and, and wreak havoc. But this is our privilege. And let's guard it. Stand in front of that picture and look at it and think, wow. And you'll start to see ways in which you'll experience the family of God working in your life. Maybe you already have. In fact, you have because some of you are Christians. In fact, I don't know. I don't know. How many of us are Christians because a previous generation of the family were praying for us? We don't know. And how many people will be Christians Because this generation of the family will be praying for that to happen. Boy, heaven's going to be someplace as we find out that people came to faith because of our prayers. Or we meet people and they go, Oh, I prayed for you. Really? You prayed for me? How exciting! How exciting it is to be a Christian. We have a father, we've got forgiveness, we've got a family. And then the fourth privilege that Paul sets out here is we have a future. Picture number four. We have, Christians have a great hope. Christians have a great hope. If you belong to Christ, you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. To be an Israelite was to be an heir of Abraham. God had promised Abraham. He had uh, promised him land. He had promised him people and he had promised him blessings. And Paul says, that's all been upgraded. That was inheritance 1.0. We're now in inheritance 2.0. Been upgraded. Because Christ has won for not just Abraham's physical descendants, but all who are in Christ, who like Abraham, believed. We have a land promised to us. That's the whole of the new heavens and the new earth. And we are part of a numberless multitude that Christ has redeemed, a kingdom, a nation, a family. And Christ has brought blessing on us, blessing in more ways than we can count and that will take us an eternity to unpack. That's what we've got. That's our hope. That's our inheritance. The picture is one of astonishing wealth. The promise that we are heirs to this is our hope. You are Abraham's seed, and your heirs. And then Paul adds the words, "According to the promise." According to the promise, and that just underlines two things for us. Those words, "According to promise," underline for us the security. Just like in the first phrase, uh, you're all sons of God, underlined the permanence of the relationship because God is a God who doesn't change. The phrase according to promise underlines the security of the promise as well as the security of the relationship. We have this secure promise. Nothing can void the promise because God doesn't change and nothing can Overpower him to make him say, "I need to reconsider." You're, you, you, there's something has happened that I that I can't control, uh, and there's there's nothing that can happen that means that God a circumstance arises. I, I never I never foresaw this because He knows everything. So the promise is completely secure, and we we know it. Because God has kept His promises. He promised that Christ would come. And on one day, we read in Zechariah, what a statement. And on one day, on one day, He would take away the sins of His people. One, on, on, on a day, with one day's sacrifice, God kept that promise. It happened at Calvary. He kept the promise to send His Son. He kept the promise that the Son would go to the cross. He kept the promise that the Son would rise from the grave. And if he kept those promises, he will keep every other promise. Our hope is secure because it's according to promise. And the words according to promise also remind us of the content of the promise. And we've mentioned it briefly already. The promise to Abraham of land that he who had nobody. Remember, he had nobody. It was all over with him and Sarah. No children. That was it. They were lonely in the world. And God says, I will make you into a great nation. A family so vast and grand. And God says to us, you were nobodies, but I've made you into a family. A family that will fill this new earth. And Scripture struggles to paint the riches that are ours. It uses cities paved with gold and gates made of jewels and foundations made of precious stones. It speaks of crowns. It speaks of thrones. It speaks of incorruptible perfection. But few places, you know, go to Revelation 21 and 22 and read there. Or go to Romans 8. Listen to Romans 8. Where Paul says, in my opinion, whatever we have to go through now is less than nothing compared to the magnificent future God has in store for us. The whole of creation is on tiptoe straining to see the wonderful sight of God's sons coming into their own. The world of creation cannot yet see this reality, yet it has been given hope. And the hope is that in the end the whole of created life will be rescued from the tyranny of change and decay and have its share in the magnificent liberty that can only belong To the children of God. Creationism tiptoe. Waiting to see what we are going to be made into. Knowing that it's going to be made new when we are made new. What a wonderful picture. What a hope we have to look forward to. Sometimes we look at this world and we think, I haven't had a chance to be who I thought I could be. I, uh, maybe through accident, maybe through illness, maybe through circumstance, we think, well, you know, people are always saying, well, I need to achieve my full potential and be what you ought to be and be what you can be and you can be anything you choose to be. And then there's a the desperate sense of disappointment when after many years of trying, they realize that it's not going to happen. For the Christian we will have all eternity to be who we will be made to be. What we were meant to be. And we will be fulfilled to every aspect of our fullest potential. That's when it's going to have. What a hope. What a hope to have whenever we look at life and we think, well, this hasn't been what I wanted it to be. What a hope to have whenever our bodies are breaking down and maybe our lives are cut short or our potential is cut short. This gives us an entirely new perspective. This is what it is to be a Christian. And that newness, that relationship, that cleansing, that family, that future, that's what we were reminded of two weeks ago. In baptism. And what we're reminded of again today. We have a father. We have a forgiveness. We have a family. And we have a future. This is what it is to belong to Jesus Christ. And having grasped that. Then. We read on in Galatians. And we say. Well if that's who I am. Now I understand. All the more why Paul says I should live like somebody who's got a father, who's been forgiven, who's part of a family, and who's got an incredible future. I should live differently because I am different. Amen. If you're able to stand, let's stand as we come to God in prayer. Oh, Lord God. Four verses. Four sets of words on a page that paint four portraits that words really can't unpack, that will take us all of eternity to unpack. And we thank you. We thank you for this astonishing privilege of what it is to be a Christian. And, O Lord God, we we pray that in this week ahead you'd help us to take time to go to the art gallery of Galatians and to sit down in front of one of these portraits and to gaze at it and to see more of the riches that are there so that we will become acquainted with our privileges so that we will live for the one who purchased all these privileges for us. Father, thank you that we can say, Father, thank you that we are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. Thank you that we have been brought into this family. Thank you for the future that lies ahead of us. And Father, we pray. We pray for those that we know and love. We pray for those that we don't know that are around us in our county, in our country. And they are orphans in this world. And they are, their filthiness before you is not yet covered over. And they are outcasts. They're not part of a family. And their future is terrible and terrifying. And Lord, we pray that you would open their eyes and work in them. You who are the God who saves. That you would open their eyes and that you would bring them to be your children that you would bring them to be clothed in Christ, that you would bring them into your family and that you would give them a hope and a future. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.